Welcome everyone to the Asian Voices Radio Podcast, where you'll find real Asian American conversations, including all the topics you were too afraid to ask your Asian parents. I'm your host, Sheena Yap Chan, and our special guest today is a newscaster and also the founder of the Very Asian Foundation. And I'm super excited to have her on today to share her story and wisdom. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce you to Michelle Lee. Hi, Michelle. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Hi, it's great to hear your voice. Um, I'm great. I'm great. Uh, life is just moving along. So <laughs> it's all good. Awesome. Awesome. I know you've had a busy year. Uh, 2022 has been, you know, phenomenal for you, but maybe we can do a recap of what happened on New Year's Day in 2022. Oh, sure. So, well, thanks for saying the year's been phenomenal. <laughs> I feel like um, it's just gone by so fast. I, um, you know, in January, I was working on New Year's Day and I had mentioned what um, Korean people eat on New Year's Day because I was talking about what Americans eat. And I realized like those are things that I didn't even eat growing up as a Missourian, um, growing up as a as an American kid. So it was like, you know, greens for wealth, pork for progress, um, cornbread, you know, it was basically like cornbread, beans and, and pork. And so when I lived in the South, sure, I ate those as an adult, um, you know, but like I didn't really grow up that way. So I just happened to say, and I had dumpling soup because that's what a lot of Korean people do. I mean, technically, Korean people eat uh, rice cake soup, like dukkuk, but um, but I said dumpling soup. And um, I had a really like nice experience with a couple of people sending in great emails and um, and just on social media. But then I had a voicemail and the voicemail was a complaint from a woman saying that I needed to keep my Korean to myself, that I was being very Asian, very annoying. I needed to talk about what white people ate. Um, and I also, she said, and if white people talked about what they, what they ate, they would be fired. And so I shared that voicemail online. And, um, sometimes I'm like, was that brave or was that stupid? <laughs> you know, I just did it because I was like, I just want people to hear this. Um, cause it was so, um, shocking to me, definitely not the worst thing people have said to me, um, over the years, but I just thought, wow, she's really sure of that. And so then shared it, it went viral. I ended up going on the Ellen show. Ellen ended up giving me quite a bit of money. And so she gave me $15,000. And with that money, we, started the Very Asian Foundation. On top of the fact that we raised um, some money for the Asian American Journalists Association in between the time that I was viral and going on Ellen, um, because when Very Asian went viral, people started sharing like all their meals, their family traditions. And then we made shirts, like Very Asian shirts and sold them all around the world, which was crazy. Um, and then used that money to give to AJA. Thank you so much for, you know, sharing a recap of your story. I know every time I hear it, you know, it just sometimes boils my blood because it's like, why does it, why is it we're not allowed to share what we're doing, our traditions, the things that we eat? You know, we live in a country like Canada and America where it's a huge melting pot, right? And we're all immigrants and we should be able to share our own traditions so that we can learn from each other and live in peace and in solidarity. But I actually wanted to... um Talk about your upbringing, right? Because you mentioned that you didn't grow up eating Korean food. You grew up eating Caucasian food most of the time, right? And I know you were uh, you grew up as a Korean ad adoptee. I wanted to know a little bit more about that and what that was like. Well, I think, you know, being an adoptee is really wonderful in many ways and really painful in many ways because these um, our life path was chosen for us, just like anybody else, really. But um, it is such a stark difference in 
where our birth countries are sometimes and where we end up landing. And, you know, for me, um, it was very evident that I was different than the rest of the people in my family, the people I loved the most, uh, my friendships, my schools. And then it became my workplaces and my college, you know, just so many other um I was just othered so often and that is fine. I mean, that just, that could happen to anybody adopted or not. But um, what it really showed me was um, if I was going to learn anything about Korean culture, um, it would have to be learned. And really that's not um, isolated to adoptees either because there are a lot of adopt or a lot of um, Asian Americans or Asian Canadians who, you know, grow up with Asian parents, but the Asian parents didn't teach them certain things, right? So, you know, for me, I, we were always really intentional about incorporating Korean culture. So I went to Korean heritage camps. Um, I went to Korea many times. Um, my parents were always very supportive of me asking questions or me not asking questions. You know, they always wanted to have that um, available for me. And, you know, in the Midwest, you would think that it's hard to come by. Um, it's not as frequent if you lived in a big city like Los Angeles or New York City, but um, it's all available. So, um, so my parents did the best that they could, you know, and um, and I really thought my childhood was pretty idyllic and and beautiful and all these things. But also, I remember things that shaped who I was and became and motivated me. And some of that was racism, you know. Some of it was like, well, I'm never going to live in the Midwest again because it, it was so racist. I mean, the truth is, that's not how it was. But um, there were racist things that happened to me that were pretty painful. Um, but I experienced racism everywhere. I mean, even in big cities with big Asian populations. We see that every day in the news. If you look at like the headlines on where people are getting brutalized and worse, um, they're not in necessarily small town America. They're in big town, big towns in the United States with large Asian populations. So it's everywhere. But yeah, I grew yeah. up very, I grew up very country and very white, um, yeah. so to speak, you know. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. And it's great that your parents, you know, allowed, like, you know, gave you the, um, the ch like gave you the chance to go out there and learn more about your Korean culture, where you came from. Cause sometimes there are some parents, you know, who adopt kids from Asia who just want, don't want them to learn about their Asian heritage, right. Kind of like shield them from it. Or feel threatened. I yeah. think they feel insecure about it. And really, it's like, um, and I totally can understand that because when I met my birth family, that all happened on an accident, by accident, I'm kind of on a whim. And I remember my dad didn't know how to process those feelings. And so when I came back, he was like, but I'm still your dad. And I said, Oh, my gosh, of course, you're still my dad. Like, what are you saying? But you know, he was anxious over that, you know, so I definitely can understand this but I raised you. I loved you. I'm here for you, you know? And, um, and I think that's just the difference of families because my parents were really open about it and they made themselves vulnerable as well. Um, and we've always been able to talk about it, but not everyone is like that. I understand that, you know, and, and there are also people who get adopted into bad situations as well. You know, so we have to be, so I always want to be really respectful of everybody's experience because it's different. Yeah, no, totally understand. Every person has a different experience. And I'd actually like to know a little bit about you meeting your, your, your family, right? Like your, your Korean family. What was that like? You said it happened on, the, on a, as an accident. 
Um, you know, if you're, if you want to share a little bit more how that happened. Sure. Um, so when I was 18, I went to Korea and I was able to look at my file and I asked, at the adoption agency and I had asked if I could meet my birth mother, if they would do a search. And they said, well, that's not how that works. Like you've got to go back to, back to your home in the United States, fill out some paperwork. And if we find them, then we'll contact you and then you can come back. And I was like, that makes no sense. <laughs> you know, and I was 18. So I was like really emotional about it um, because I, I hadn't really been that interested in locating my birth family because I just didn't really want to go there. Um, I think, I mean like mentally and then, um, but there was something that happened to me when I like got off the plane, you know, and was in the country and looking at every woman thinking like that could be my birth mother, you know? So there's something that there was something that happened to me that was really, um, uh, noticeable and um, profound. So I, you know, when I had the chance to look at my file, I wanted to find my birth mother, but they said it was impossible. So uh, the social worker did. So I said, okay. And I just left thinking this is not meant to be. But then a few days later, they had contacted me um, because the social worker did a search, like just a quick search and was able to locate my birth mother. And then, um, Basically, then she had to tell the rest of the family. So the short version is that my birth parents were still married or are mar were married and they had two older daughters. Um, those older daughters were like three years old and two years old. And then my birth mother got pregnant with me and my father was working on a ship away from home. So he, my mother was solo parenting two toddlers and one on the way. And she went to give birth in a free clinic and no one visited her in the hospital. And I think she was like depressed, overwhelmed, um, maybe even still like, you know, um, just dealing with like um, just a lot, you know, just really overwhelmed. And so she relinquished me there in the hospital. And um, when she had a chance to talk to my birth father, she told him that I had died at birth. And so then by the time he came home, um, he and my mother um, got pregnant again and had my youngest sister. So we're all about a year and a half or a year apart. My two oldest sisters are actually exactly 12 months apart. So my birth mother didn't have any time to recover mentally or physically um, from, you know, she just kept cranking out kids. And so, you know, me being a mother now of just one kiddo, I realize how hard that is with one. Um, so she was under a lot of stress. And um, ultimately, you know, she had to tell her husband, my, my birth father, that um, she had lied to him all those years. And then together, they had to tell my sisters that they had another sister in the United States. I mean, quite shocking, really, you know, if you were, if you could imagine getting that news. So, um, but now that's been more than half my life. And so, you know, since then we've had multiple trips back and forth. Um, I, I helped my second oldest sister move to the United States, um, which I'm really proud of. So we have this really big kind of Brady Bunch Korean American family and, um, and the greatest things that have ever happened to me happened because of my birth family and my family, you know, so like my two moms got to meet, you know, before my mom uh, passed away. Um, and that was really amazing. So, and my dad over the summer, 
um, got to meet um, two of my sisters. So that was really cool. Awesome. I love this story. I feel like it needs to be like one of the stories in the Joy Luck Club, you know, because they have a similar story too, right? Yeah. And, and sometimes we don't know what happens, right? Like, like you mentioned, your mom was all alone. She had to take care of two young kids plus one on the way. And, you know, you know, this is just like an educated guest. She probably wanted a better life for you as well. Right. She's like, how am I going to take care of three small daughters by myself while my husband is stuck in a ship? It's like you mentioned, it's not easy to take care of kids. And I love seeing all the dancing videos of your, of your son on, on social media. It's just so cute. But like, you know, when you're, you're a working mom or you're, you're, you, you, like you're a working mom, you also have the foundation and you still have to take care of a kid. Like that's a lot, right? And people don't understand as women, there's a lot to do, right? We just don't do one thing. We do many things regardless if we have kids or not. Um, and then you also mentioned like, you know, racism is everywhere. It's so true. And especially, if, you know, for women in journalism, like it's, they, they get a lot of threats, right? They get a lot of, you know, racism, especially lately with the Stop Asian Hate Movement. You know, we've seen, um, you know, Asian newscasters sharing like, you know, I've, I'm being like called out different names. I'm being harassed. Have, have you gone through similar things as well? Of course. Yeah. I mean, the thing that happened to me on New Year's Day, like I said, was not the worst thing that ever happened to me. I mean, I've had people um, call in to complain and use racial slurs, um, you know, to get that damn whatever off the air. Um, you know, I've had people um, get confrontational out in the field. Um, you know, even saying things that were like microaggressions, like, oh, look, we got Connie Chung out here, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, but like, there have been times when I've been like physically scared, you know, um, just because of some aggression or whatever. And, um, and then also fighting stereotypes within the news industry and the media industry has also been a 20 year battle, you know, and, um, and even still, we have a long way to go. If you're looking at the United States, um, you know, AAJA, the Asian American Journalist Association, looked at like the top 20 markets, um, top 20 television markets, and found that Asian Americans were grossly underrepresented on air, which is no surprise to me because for many years I have tried to be, you know, a journalist on air and have been told throughout my career, we can't hire you. We, you know, we already have an Asian person. Um, it would confuse the viewer to have two Asian women at our station. Um, there's still even coming back to the Midwest, this um, idea, this misnomer that like Asian people don't exist in the Midwest, you know, trying to get corporations also to buy in that like Asian people live in top 20 cities outside of Los Angeles, outside of San Francisco um, and have money to spend and want you know, media coverage and all these things. It's, it's a hard buy-in a lot of times. Um, even in St. Louis, uh, where I am now, um, there aren't a lot of Asian folks on air. Um, there might be one of us at each station. So it's, a, I mean, it's a battle. It 100% is a battle to get people to understand like we've had belonging, you know, since, since, States have been, you know, states have been around. Um, I think I, I always joke in Missouri, for example, the state became a state like in 1820 something. And by 1860, so 40 years later, there was a Chinatown in St. Louis. And that Chinatown lasted for almost 100 years. But if you ask anyone 
I mean, I ask people all the time because I do a lot of speeches and stuff. And I say, well, does anyone know about Hop Alley? Most people say no. And Hop Alley was the Chinatown that was here for a century and people don't know about it. So that goes to show you how much history that is Missourian history or that is American history or whatever has been erased over time. Yeah. Thank you so much, you know, for sharing about all, all that, right? Becoming a journalist, uh, becoming an Asian journalist. It's not easy, right? Especially as an Asian woman, you know, um, talking about especially the racist attacks that's been happening. I mean, you're on the job. You could, you know, you're like putting yourself in danger. And I think people don't understand what you go through, right? Or what most Asian female, Asian female, well, not regardless Asian or not female journalists go through, right? Because it's not just Asian females. And then the underrepresentation of Asian Americans and Canadians in every industry, right? Um, thinking having one Asian person makes the diversity cut, but that's not how it works, right? Um, I remember there was a study from Catalyst.org that I mentioned before that, you know, Asian women only represent 2.7% of management roles in the US, right? And then when it comes to authorship in the US, you know, Asian Americans only represent 4% of authors, in all of United States in 2021. So it's very small, right? And of course, you know, we're here trying to elevate our community and sometimes it's an uphill battle. Like you take one step forward, two steps back, right? If I go out for a speech, you know, I'm getting told my story's too specific, right? But what does that even mean? What does, what does being too specific mean? Is it because I have smaller eyes? I have, the, you know, fair hair. I mean, it's, it's crazy that in 2022, still this things like this still happen, right? But it's also up to us to keep moving forward, to keep speaking up, to talk about things that aren't broadcasted in TV or even in history. And um, you know what to ask, what can we do to have more representation of Asian Americans, especially in broadcast journalism? Well, I think that no matter what, we need to keep um, coming at it like in a multi-pronged approach, right? So it's like, for me, it's, you know, trying to keep sharing with newsrooms and my news managers, which they believe this too, I think, but also you got to push a little bit, you know, like I deserve to bring my full humanity to the table. Um, you know, if you can benefit off of me being a mom or being a woman, then you can benefit off me from being an Asian woman, you know, or allow me to share my story. I don't think that's a problem. I think my station's always been really great about that. But, um, but I think that there are some stations that might not feel that way. Um, there are some stations that shy away from race because they think it might be political, but I always say, you know, I'm not, it's not my fault that someone politicizes me. I'm very clear on who I am. I'm a journalist for everybody, but like, I can't ignore the fact and won't ignore the fact that I'm Asian and have these experiences. And then, so, you know, you have to kind of like, you know, keep pushing for representation, um, and understand and getting people to buy in that they're diverse too, like I've had people literally in groups say, well, I'm just a white guy. What do I have to contribute? And I said, well, have you ever been made fun of? Have you ever felt insecure? We all have something. None of us go unscathed. So use that experience, whatever, whatever it is, you know, to have empathy for others and bring others along with your, with you on your journey, you know, and, uh, and make space for others. Uh, at the same time, I think another approach is to create the content. You know, when you don't have it, create it. And so, you know, I know that you've created um, and written books and had, you know, events and workshops. And that's where we are with the foundation. 
um, creating like very Asian summits and panel discussions and programming. And we created the May Book Project. And then also just recently, I wrote a children's book, um, A Very Asian Guide to Korean Food. And um, it's, just, it's a kid's book about Korean food. There aren't very many out there. And so I'm really honored that I got to do that and work with an Asian American female publisher. Um, so, you know, there are things that we're, that I'm doing that's, you know, really intentional, um, not to like be very Asian. Sometimes I want to be subtly Asian. Sometimes I don't want to be anything. I just want to be mom, you know, but being able to bring that identity into my space is really important to me. And also I think um, it's important to my, to the next generation, to my son, um, so that he can see himself in spaces because I didn't get to see myself in all those spaces. Making room for people is should not be a threat. <laughs> you know, like we all deserve to have some seat at the, uh, have a seat at the table. I, I love that. And it's so true, right? I mean, it's, it's crazy that we still go through this feeling like we don't belong just because, you know, we look a certain way. We can't even call ourselves American or Canadian because it's like, there's a standard and it's like, what standard is that? You know, we all came in as immigrants except for like indigenous people. So we should all be able to live, you know, um, harmoniously, peacefully, learn from each other's traditions and be okay to show up as our true selves. Because if not, you know, then this is what the cycle has been going on forever and ever. Um, well, also, but what is the standard? Because the world yeah. standard, if you're looking at the world population, Asian people make up the world. Yeah. Make up the majority <laughs> of the world population. So, I mean, I'm always like, well, who's the standard? Because exactly. I think by numbers alone, we're the standard. You know, I mean, all jokes aside, it's just, it, to me, it's always funny when, you know, you start buying into the fact that you're not the standard. I feel very much the standard, you know, so I feel above standard sometimes, you know, so I, mean, I don't want to call myself just standard, but it's this idea of like, you know, who's calling the shots on what the, what the standard is. And that goes back to the very Asian origin story, you know, being able to say that American food could only be pork and cornbread. Not true. It can be dumplings. It can be noodles. It can be whatever. Um, and when people try to politicize you know, the work that, you know, I'm trying to do just as a human being and as a journalist, um, I always say the whole point of being very Asian is that we get to say we're very Asian is very American um, and that we all have an opportunity to bring our full selves to the table and just, you know, like just cut out the, just cut out the politics because it's not about that at all. Yeah. I think that, you know, it was just great words of wisdom that you mentioned. Um, I just actually have one more question for you. Yeah. Any words of advice for those who are thinking of pursuing a career in media as a broadcaster or reporter? Well, I think really it has to be the basics that have always been the basics. Um, it has to be about having curiosity. It has to have a foundation in writing um, it has to, you have to have a foundation in having empathy for people and, um, you know, a, an ability and a curiosity that will lead you to good storytelling. You know, there's so many times when people try to peg me as one thing or another, and I'm always like, but I'm open to both sides. Are you, you know, things that like, okay, well, this makes sense to me. Um, you know, where's the middle ground? I think being able to have a common sense approach to things also helps. But um, but that doesn't mean that we don't experience life. So that doesn't mean that we don't come into a story with bias. 
but I want to be as straight in the center as I possibly can. You know, like I said, I'm a journalist for everybody, but, um, but I do have experiences, lived experiences as a human being. And so, um, so I think anyone who wants to get into journalism or broadcasting or media, um, you know, make sure that you're coming at it from those elements, like, you know, storytelling, empathy, um, curiosity. But um, I think the next generation of journalists and, and broadcasters and entertainers and people in media will be people who will be able to also bring their lived experiences to the table and, and make it a forefront too. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that great advice. Actually, I have one more quick question for you. You know, is there any few words um, to adoptees like yourself struggling with self-identity? What words of wisdom would you give to them? I think it's really important to just try to get out, get the noise, you know, uh, try to push out the noise and just be you. I mean, for a long time, I thought that I had to be a certain kind of Korean person. Um and, you know, what I really ended up finding was that that person didn't exist. You know, that was me pretending to be a Korean person. Um, any American or probably any any Canadian, like let's say we're just going to go with Korean Canadian or Korean American, who goes back to Korea does not fit in. They are not Korean Korean. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like this idea of like just understanding like you just are who you are. Um, I tried to hang out with a bunch of Korean kids when I was in college and I took Korean lessons because I had just gotten back from Korea. So I was learning Korean and studying it every day for two hours a day. And these Korean kids really gave me a lot of hell because they were like, you're too whitewashed. You don't hang out. You're not diverse enough. And I said, we're, you're talking to me in a science library with all other Asian kids. You're only speaking Korean. So where's your diversity? Also, mm -hmm. you were born in Kansas. I was legit born in Korea. You know, like, I was like, don't make this a competition because that's not what it is. But, yeah. like, you know, I felt so bad about myself because I was like, well, maybe they're right. Maybe I am whitewashed. You know, maybe I am all these things. And then I was like, but I have white parents. Like, what do you want from me? You know, we can't control where we were born. We can't control who we were born to. And if, unless we're living in like legit Korea, we probably have a different relationship with Korea or our origin country than people who live there now. And that is okay. You know, like I said, I mean, you can be as subtle or very Asian as you want. I'm not into purity tests. The difference is when I go out into the, when I go on television or when I go out into the street, like people see a Korean face, they look at the packaging. They don't know how I was raised or where I was born or all those things. And so I think that's where the connection point is. And I also think as Americans or as Canadians, we all have a connection in that sense. You know, Asian Americans have a different experience than, say, my sister, who now is a Korean, Korean living in America. Um, and we just have to, like, lean into our identities. And, um, you know, we can't be something that we're not. And we can't be something for everyone. You know, I'm, I, every time I go to Korea, it's like, oh, if you could just have some plastic surgery and maybe tan less and maybe lose 50 pounds, you know, and I'm like, I don't want to be what, you know, so we're just who we are. And at some point you have to live for yourself. I am who I am. I am just a woman named Michelle. I'm a mom, you know, I'm living my best life or trying to. 
And, um, and I think that is what adoptees struggle with because um, we've just lived multiple identities. Yeah, I, I love that advice. That can go for any person listening to this. So thank you so much. And, and you know, where can listeners find you, you know, make a donation to Very Asian Foundation? You know, if you can just share uh, any links or social media profiles. Oh, sure. Well, it's veryasianfoundation.org, or you can just search for Very Asian Foundation on social. So sometimes we're the Very Asian Foundation, sometimes we're just Very Asian Foundation, but it's always the foundation. Um, uh, keyword that will that you'll find. Awesome. Well, f- first off, I want to thank Michelle Lee today for joining us. To learn more about Michelle, as she mentioned, please visit veryasianfoundation.org. If you have any questions for future guests or topics, we'd love to hear from you. Also, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, as well as follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Asian Voices Radio is produced by Asian Culture and Media Alliance, a nonprofit that empowers our API community with a voice through media arts. If you would like to support our program and make a donation, please visit AsianVoicesRadio.com. Thank you for listening. I'm Sheena Yapchan. Please join us next week for another exciting and thought-provoking Asian Voices Radio show. Until then, take care, everyone.